Today on Maine Calling, an update from Maine hospital leaders. Earlier this month, Maine's community colleges dropped their COVID vaccine mandate, the most recent public institution to do so. COVID is still out there, but many people are living their lives as though it's not. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Where exactly are we in this pandemic? What's the situation in Maine? Today on Maine Calling, we discuss COVID and other topics with Maine hospital leaders. From vaccinations to long COVID, what are researchers learning? Also, how many people are being hospitalized because of influenza? And we'll find out how hospitals are coping with staffing shortages and other challenges only made worse by the pandemic. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Where are we in this pandemic? Is it still a pandemic anyway? We're going to talk with Maine hospital leaders about the COVID outlook and reality and discuss the flu and other health issues, including hospitals trying to meet patient needs. My guest today, Dr. Dora Mills, who is Chief Health Improvement Officer for Maine Health, and Dr. James Jarvis, Senior Physician Executive, System Incident Command, with Northern Light Health. We invite you to ask your questions. Send an email to talk at mainpublic.org. Post a comment on social media, that's Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. Thank you both for coming back to Maine Calling. Um, I'll start with the question that I ask you every time, Dr. Mills. What are, what are we seeing in terms of the pandemic in Maine hospitals? Are we still seeing people who are hospitalized because of the pandemic, uh, because of COVID, or have we moved on? No, very much we're seeing it. Um, in fact, uh, this morning, as of this morning at Maine Health Hospitals, which are nine of them, um, we have 71 patients who are hospitalized because of COVID. Um, and it's been, it's been bouncing between probably mid 50s to 80 the last quite a few weeks so this is right about where we've been and we have um let me see about uh eight of them in the intensive care unit statewide as of this morning um just looked up the numbers and it says 171 uh, people hospitalized across the state with covid and um and uh about 24 in critical care. And that's about, you know, and the state has been bouncing around too. I mean, the levels go up and down, um, but they generally have been uh, from the statewide perspective, about 160 to 180 hospitalized on any given day. So that, you know, that's quite a bit. And also five per day on average, Maine has seen the last few weeks, five per day dying from COVID. So this is by far not over. And, you know, we hear a lot about the, op the very tragic um, opioid epidemic, the substance use, you know, uh, uh, epidemic, and there are about two a day in Maine dying of that. And those are, um, you know, very tragic deaths. Um, but 
also we've got five a day dying of COVID. So I just think to put it in perspective, I don't mean to be comparing diseases, but um, but it just sometimes people don't know what five a day looks, you know, compares to other things, and that's how it does compare. Um, so, but what we're mostly working with right now and challenged by is, and I think you're probably going to get to this later, but really it's a workforce shortage um, and the increase in everything else. So you're kind of the ripple effects, the downstream effects of the COVID pandemic. So we know from data nationally that, you know, the last three years people put on a lot of weight and, um, and there's a lot of, you know, risk factors that have increased. So we're seeing as a result, I think in part, a lot more people with heart attacks and diabetes and strokes and, and a lot of behavioral health issues. We have a lot of people backed up in emergency rooms um, who can't find placement for with mental health crises and the like. So really, and then we have a workforce shortage. So we're seeing an increase in demand for healthcare as well as a very, very severe workforce shortage. Um, so the COVID pandemic continues to challenge us, but the ripple effects um, probably even more so at this point. You're right. And I do want to talk more about that. But Jim, let me ask you, um, are you seeing the same um, kind of situation in the hospitals that you administer uh, that Dr. Mills is in the main health system? Yeah, very similar. So Eastern Maine Medical Center had 18 patients uh, admitted for COVID uh, or with COVID um, uh, this, as of this morning. One of them is on a ventilator. So again, same thing as Dr. Mills said, uh, we are seeing patients who are who are sick. Um, certainly not in the numbers we were seeing before, but it is still, you know, out there. Um, and uh, unfortunately, some people are severely ill that they need to be in our intensive care units. Um, and so that's a concern. Uh, out there in the community, though, we continue to see people who are infected and thankfully are, are, have uh, lower um, risks, lower symptoms, uh, and therefore, you know, are able to still function. But, you know, um, as, as Dora said, the ramifications of that can be long-term consequences. And we see a lot of individuals um, who really are struggling to, to meet the demands of what their activities of daily living are. You know, being able to get up and go to work, take care of their kids, because they continue to be fatigued after having an infection beforehand. And as far as the workforce shortage goes, I experienced that firsthand in my own clinic this morning, um, you know, already uh, hampered by having uh, less staff than, than hired than we need and, uh, and then having several of our own uh, staff out with COVID. And so that just puts an added strain on, on the, the, the system and, uh, and makes it so that you know, patients are waiting a little bit longer to be seen by their provider and getting the care that they need. And so it really, this will be something that will, that will continue with us for, for the long haul. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about that, um, about the reasons for the workforce shortage. I mean, we know that there are workforce shortages throughout Maine in so many places. We know there's a teacher shortage, a shortage of people who can work in skilled um, factory settings. We, I mean, in restaurants and hotels, this is not something that only healthcare is dealing with. But I'm wondering if the problem has been exacerbated because so many people who work in healthcare have one, either uh, gotten COVID and now are, have long COVID and can't work, two, decided to retire early or take another job because of the stress of working in healthcare um, during COVID. Uh, if there are other things I haven't mentioned, uh, Dr. Mills, what is going on here? Yeah, so you know, um, you all the points you made, I agree with. Um, those are some factors. Um, I think this is, as is anything, this is multiple factors. One of the things I did recently was to look up the 2020 census for Maine and the country. 
And I think one of the issues was very striking in that census report. That is, you know, a lot of people know that Maine is the oldest state in the nation. We have the highest proportion of people 65 and older and the highest median age. What I didn't realize until I recently looked up the 2020 census is that we also have the highest proportion of people, the highest percentage of people 50 and older. And we have the lowest proportion of people 18 to 50, second lowest proportion of people under 18. So in other words, when you look at healthcare, we have the oldest proportion of people who generally need the most healthcare, 50 and older. But we have the lowest percentage of people in the working age, the highest you know, working age group of 18 to 50 who can take care of those patients. So I think this, this extreme demographic challenge has made the workforce challenge in Maine worse than any other state. All states are dealing with this workforce challenge. Um, all of my colleagues across the country are saying they're, they're dealing with it. But my sense from talking with them is that we have it worse. And indeed, I think this is one of the major reasons we have it worse. You know, whereas the teacher shortage is certainly a challenge in every other industry as well. But when you look at it, the fact that we have the smallest, uh, the second smallest uh, percentage of kids makes it a little bit easier to deal with that workforce shortage, right? Um, with, with teaching kids. Whereas with healthcare, the highest demand is from for healthcare is from people 50 and older. And we have the highest percentage of people in that age group, but the lowest percentage in the country of people in the in the in this the working age group that really works with them the most. So I think that extreme demographic challenge is a factor. Um, and and we can't just, you know, we we've had the one of the highest in migration rates in the country, which is great. People moving here from other states and other countries, we need that. But when you look at the gap analysis, it's so huge, we couldn't possibly address this workforce shortage just from in migration. You know, it's gonna take a lot of uh, creative ways, uh, strategies, including telehealth and, and remote having remote workers from other states. We don't even have enough housing. If we did have 100,000 people moved here, we couldn't house them all. So anyway, so that's a workforce shortage is, is by far, I think, some of the biggest challenges we have, including the, uh, the demographic challenges exacerbating it. Dr. Charles, yeah, that's what, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, in 2018, um, the Center for, for Workforce Management did a, a review of healthcare. And in Maine, at that time, 43% of Maine's physicians were over the age of 55, and 50% of the physicians working in our rural communities were over the age of 55. So that was five years ago. So now those people are now in their 60s. And so you can see why we've, we've seen a, a large migration if the majority of our of just our physicians alone are now at, at or near retirement age and with the issues that we experienced during the pandemic, it's no wonder that we that we now have such a decrease and it will take a lot of effort for us to overcome that here in Maine, but across the entire United States. Let me ask you um, just on the ground what that means. Uh, Dr. Jarvis, I know that means that if you go to the emergency department, you may have to wait. If you um, are looking for um, some sort of what we call elective surgery, though many people think these are, you know, that that's not really a, a term for something that when you're in great pain. Um, but but walk us through you live in a rural part of maine and you may need to have your appendix your appendix out what does this mean 
Yeah, so it means it means that I think for a lot of Mainers, travel is going to be part of their healthcare plan um, for for good or bad, um, and I think that's really going to be be seen more. Um, we've seen some some hospitals recently announced that they're going to stop doing maternity care, uh, which again means that 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 local um, that local provider who you know and may see in the supermarket isn't there anymore, and you're going to have to now drive to another location. Um, I think you're going to find that there's going to be a lot more delays in trying to just reach out to your primary care provider for routine care, um, and maybe sometimes for that acute thing where you need to, where you would like to be seen today but it's gonna be a several days before you can get in to see that provider. And then as you talk about, for those that are really ill, those that need emergency services, those that need to be hospitalized, you know, unfortunately, we just don't have the bed space for that. Um, I know yesterday, Eastern Maine Medical Center had 23 patients that were boarding in their emergency department who had been admitted to the hospital. There is no staffed bed for them to go into. Um, and, and that's really not the best place for people to be. It's better than them being at home, um, but we know that people do much better when they're in the right place at the right time with the right amount of care. And that those kind of things are delayed when we have workforce shortages or when we have what we're seeing now, um, an increased patient load and patient burden and patients being sicker than they were before. Are you all concerned that people will die because of this delayed care? And, and has this happened already? Dr. Mills. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, pinpointing it to a specific case is difficult. Um, and I think there are some times when we can kind of say, oh, well, this patient was, you know, at this this particular small hospital where they were doing the best they can and couldn't get to a medical center or a tertiary care facility in time. But it's hard to, to really pin those down. But anecdotally, I think we can all probably say that, yes, indeed, we have seen uh, poorer outcomes because of the delay. Um, we also have another delay in the workforce, which is the people that transport patients. And if if the people that transport patients from location to location, particularly from hospital to hospital for, to a higher level of care, are in short supply or because they're strapped because they're handling all 911 calls, then again, that leads to a delay in, in transport time. Uh, for individuals. So so it is concerning. And, you know, a, a, as I am over age 55, um, I start wondering about myself, despite being in very good health. Um, you know, what, what does that mean for me and my family? Uh, but then I look around the country, and it's not like this is unique to Maine. This is happening everywhere. My parents are in Florida, and, uh, and, and, and recently are experienced the exact same thing of having uh, you know, a short-staffed healthcare system, uh, re resulting in a delay of them getting the care that they needed. Dr. Yeah, Nelson. and I, I I agree with everything Jim said as well. And uh, but I it, it is a national issue, <clears throat> as again probably exacerbated here in Maine because of the extreme demographic challenges we have. But I also um, I think I think one of the lessons that we all should take home from this too, is that to get care early if you've got some issue going on, if you can. I mean, I realize people sometimes you you call your PCP and your primary care provider, and it may take six months to get a physical exam. But make those appointments now. Get make sure you've got your appointments for your physical exam. I mean, we are there to take care of you, even despite all these challenges. Um, we are there for that. But be, make sure you're update you're updated on all your screenings, as an example. So the colonoscopies or colon cancer screenings after 50, mammograms, you know, those kinds of things. We are seeing people coming in really late with late diagnosed diabetes, late diagnosed cancers. So getting in early, um, not, not ignoring, you know, not ignoring the, 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 the noise, the knock on your car, <laughs> not making sure that if you've got something similar going on with your body to get in early. Um, but we are, you know, with that, that kind of hopeful news, hopefully to get in early and get checked out. 
um, because we are there to take care of you. But, you know, as Jim said, we also at Maine Health across the country, but particularly here in Maine are seeing the backup um, in the the emergency rooms. So when you do go to get especially acute care, um, take a dose, a strong dose of patience with you. Um, patience spelled with a I E N T C E or not T C E, whatever. <laughs> not the patience with a T, but the patients with a C um, when you go in. So just as an example, between January and the end of October um, of 2022. So between uh, we had. 861 Maine children spent more than 48 hours in emergency rooms waiting behave for behavioral health services. 48 hours. If you ever spent three hours in an emergency room, you know it can really stress your patients. And you think these are kids with behavioral health issues spending more than 48 hours in an emergency room. On any given day at Maine Health's nine hospitals, we have 70 to 100 patients who are stuck in inpatient beds awaiting discharge to residential care, skilled like skilled nursing facilities, nursing homes, or assisted living. Um, nursing facilities are operating at a greatly reduced capacity across the state because of the workforce shortages. Um, so for instance, our own publicly owned Barron Center, I think it's owned by the city of Portland, was at 43% capacity recently. So when we have a nursing home like the Barron Center operating at 43% of capacity, it directly impacts how Maine Medical Center and other hospitals can discharge patients to that level of need of care. So there's a domino so, effect. The domino effect, exactly. So it's, it's more people needing care, fewer people there to take care of them. And then um, because their long-term care facilities are backed up as well and not running at full capacity, we have people backed up, you know, 70 to 100 a day who are waiting in main hospitals, main health hospitals, just our hospitals, you know, not even Northern Light Health Hospitals uh, County waiting for care. Um, so you get this backup. It's quite a um, quite a challenge. So just if you take your patients with you, when you do go in, we do appreciate it. Our healthcare workers are still our heroes. You know, they're still working day and night to help take care of everybody and they're there to help you. Um, and I know uh, a lot of people have gone to hospitals everywhere around the state. What people tell me that they're just amazed how well cared for they do get. And people are very empathetic um, and really there to help take care of them. But it is a challenge right now. So just take that extra dose of kindness and patience with you. What are your questions for our guests today, Dr. Dora Mills and Dr. Jim Jarvis? Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email, brief, to talk at mainpublic.org or find us on social media. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Today we are talking with Maine hospital leaders about many things, including where we are at COVID, in the COVID pandemic, also um, talking about the crowding, the situation with understaffing at hospitals. Haven't yet asked about the flu, but we'll talk about that as well. What are your questions for Dr. Jim Jarvis with Northern Light Health and Dr. Dora Mills at Maine Health? Our email address, talk at mainepublic.org. You can comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. And Dr. Jarvis, what about the flu? Is the season over? So the season's not over, but thankfully, you know, we saw that rapid uh, increase in flu cases back in, in October, November, somewhat unprecedented, actually. And we talked about that on this this call. 
Um, but really, we the, the cases of flu in Maine have significantly decreased. It's still out there. The one thing we haven't seen is a big bump in, in influenza B yet. And so typically in Maine, and it's hard right now to call what a typical season is, but typically in Maine, we see the large uh, um, influx of cases of influenza A during the late fall and winter time. But influenza B usually hits us more as we get to the end of winter and into spring, and then sometimes even into summer in our state. And so we haven't seen that yet. We don't know if that's going to occur this year. So we need to keep on the lookout for it. So if you have not yet gotten your flu shot, please go out and get it because it will offer protection against not just influenza A that we typically see in the wintertime, but influenza B that we see in the springtime. And so far, the, the data shows that the, the flu shot combination that we have this year is a good match for what's been circulating out there, which is probably why we've seen such a decrease uh, rapidly after that rapid increase we saw back in the fall. Dr. Mills, it's there have been so many vaccines and boosters Bring us up to speed. Where are we today? What, what, where should most of us be in our vaccination sort of uh, journey? Uh, what can we expect in the near future? How do we know if we're up to date? Yeah, great question. Um, so everybody should have gotten the primary series of vaccine, which is generally two vaccines of either Moderna or Pfizer or one of Janssen, the J&J vaccine. Um, or now Novavax. So there is a vaccine that was uh, approved, uh, authorized last uh, summer, late summer called Novavax, which is actually a traditionally made vaccine um, using recombinant technology that's commonly used in hepatitis vaccines and some flu vaccines and the like. So if you somebody, if you know somebody who's not been vaccinated at all yet, and they didn't want to get the mRNA vaccines or something like that, the Novavax is a kind of regular type of vaccine, uh, but it's against uh, COVID. So in addition to the, and you have to get two of those, uh, the Nova vaccines to get the primary series. Everybody should have gotten at least one booster and, the, and everybody should have gotten the current booster which is called the bivalent booster. And it's bivalent because it protects you against the, um, the, the older strains of COVID as well as the Omicron strains. So what we're seeing right now for the variants, the subvariants that are circulating around the world are all now descended, pretty much all of them are descended from Omicron, which we started seeing in December, in this country around December of 2021. And we had a huge surge with it in January of 21. At 22, I'm sorry, January 22. So, um, so the bivalent booster is bivalent, meaning it, it, it protects you against two major um, strains of, uh, or big types of variants of COVID, the older variants, as well as the, the Omicron uh, variant. So that has been shown, some of the studies um, that have been released very recently showing it's very, very effective. So if you didn't get, it came out in late August, early September. So if you didn't get the bivalent booster, if you haven't had a booster since then, since about early September, then you should definitely go and get one. Um, pharmacies are offering it, pra practices are offering it. The big clinics have pretty much closed down. Um, there hasn't been such a need for them, but you should have at least the primary series and the bivalent booster that's out there. So those are the two things you need the minimum of to be protected. And again, the bivalent booster is very protective now. So um, so good, good to get it. And with masking too, when you go into, if you really don't wanna get COVID, 
Um, masking in an indoor crowded place is still also a good idea. I I go back and forth. I've kind of, I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't gotten COVID yet that I know of. So, um, but I've been, so, uh, but I, I don't always mask, but I, I was masking, um, I, I, I'm going to be masking the next couple of weeks because I'm going on a trip and I don't want to get COVID before my trip. So it kind of depends on the situation, but I, I do mask if it's very quick, like in a theater. I went to the Portland Stage Company Theater recently and I did wear a mask because it's small, theater, crowded. Um, and, uh, you know, but if I go into the grocery store, it depends if it's not that crowded, I don't always mask. So it's up to, you know, masking is still there as a tool for people to use. If you're high risk you do, or you live with somebody high risk, you don't want to get COVID, masking, I recommend it for especially indoor crowded areas that aren't that well ventilated. Um, and I still carry a mask. I think all my jackets, all my coats and everything have masks in the pocket. My car has a bunch of them. I just kind of, they're all, they're kind of there everywhere along with my driver's license. So just kind of keep it with me, all, keep them with me all the time. Well, we do have a question in here about masking and I'll send this to you, Dr. Jarvis, an email from Nancy. As I write this, my husband is in isolation with COVID. Can you ask your guests about the efficacy of wearing masks? Perhaps reminding Mainers to mask up when they're not feeling well would be helpful. A reminder to stay home if you have flu-like symptoms and mask when you go out. My sense is that people have given up in trying to prevent the spread of COVID. Does masking help? Dr. Jarvis, what do we know? And, And there's been some reporting that questions this, hasn't there? Yeah. So, so again, we learn more every single day. Um, but the end all be all is that yes, masking helps. It just depends on what that, what, how much it helps that we really need to talk about. And so certainly if, um, if there's anybody who had high, who, who is at high risk for severe disease, so that means anyone over the age of 50, anyone who's overweight or obese, anyone with any underlying heart, heart or lung problem, or is immunocompromised, say, because they're being treated for cancer or something along those lines, or if they're pregnant or live with somebody who's pregnant. So that pretty much covers just about everybody in the state of Maine when we start talking about that. And so with that said, wearing a mask helps to prevent the spread to some degree. What we really know is that when we get sick with viruses is how much virus do we actually inhale at any particular time really plays a role in whether we get sick or not. And so the mask becomes a barrier to that amount that gets spread from person to person. So as Dora said, I still recommend my patients who are are in any of those risk categories that they continue to mask um, when they're in any any kind of spot where they're gonna be around lots of other people. Um, And definitely if they're gonna be there for any prolonged period of time. Um, with that said, the less that you get you get of a viral load, the less likely you're going to have severe disease. So for me, I try to prevent, you know, I, I would love it if I never got COVID again. I didn't like it when I, when I had it the first time. But if I do get it, I want it to be as mild as possible. And so decreasing the amount of virus that I inhale will help to do that. And so that's really what we're looking at. There is a study out there that's getting some wide publications, not really a study, it's a review of lots of other studies um, that, that really came inconclusive as to whether or not masking works. But you have to know that that's, that was a review of studies about all respiratory illnesses, which included things like influenza, RSV, um, other cold-like viruses, and not the highly transmissible Omicron variants that we see right now of COVID. 
And there's excellent data out there to say that, yes, indeed, masking helps to prevent the spread of that highly contagious Omicron variant. We've seen that in schools. Uh, there was a very good um, review by the CDC of two schools in Massachusetts. Massachusetts school districts could decide whether they wanted masking or not. They took two, like, two very like school districts, ones that required masking and one that did not. The one that did not had a higher rate of children absences and, more importantly, a higher rate of ill teachers in those schools. The only difference between the two was whether they wore masks or not. And so, yes, indeed, I believe masking works. And if you think about it here in healthcare, we wear masks for particular reasons. We wear masks when we go into rooms with individuals who have highly contagious respiratory viruses. And we also wear masks when we're in our operating rooms. And that's, again, to help prevent the spread from one person to another. We'll go to Joanne, who's calling from Naples. Hi, Joanne. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. This is a, a comment about Novavax. Um, Dr. Mills, I'm uh, a nurse not working clinically and have an autoimmune disease, so I was told I could not get mRNA vaccines. I waited for the J&J. I had an anaphylactic reaction to it within five minutes. Uh, I've had no vaccine since, so I was looking on uh, with uh, beta breath for Novavax. So when it finally came, I called Maine CDC. They referred me to the Maine Health Vaccination Center. I called them. They said, we're no longer giving vaccines, uh, just um, immunotherapy. And I will tell you that your primary care doctor at Maine Health, who is new and I've not seen yet, uh, once you do see them, they can't give you the Novavax. It takes five people on a list before we even order the Novavax because of expense and, of course, because of the two injections. So it's, I just want people to know you just can't make an appointment and show up depending on where you are. I know every location is a little yeah. different. Thank you very much um, for that point. And, yeah, it isn't stocked everywhere because it is um, just like everything else. I mean, it has an expiration date and all that, so we don't want to you know, order a bunch of it and then have it sit there and expire. Um, but the, um, it is available in some places. I think that the main CDC has a website, at least it used to be, you could go on there and find out where you could get certain vaccines. Um, also, if you've had, and I'm so sorry about the anaphylaxis you had to the J&J &J vaccine, um, but you can talk to uh, an allergist. Also, allergists oftentimes will work with people who've had the uh, severe reactions to one vaccine, and this is true of all different types of vaccines, um, and help you get the vaccine that you might need and maybe and sometimes they will have you get the vaccine in their office so that they can monitor you um, so just as an idea I, don't, I mean you've obviously got uh, plugged into the healthcare system somehow but that's for people who do have had severe allergies um, that's another route to go is through the allergist and sometimes and then they'll order the vaccine that you need and and have you get it in their office all right thanks Joanne I'm going to read a couple of emails here because they're related an email here from Vicki I moved back to Maine in August Seeking a primary care physician, most practices said simply no new patients. One practice allowed me to make a new patient appointment for late May 2023. Clearly a serious problem. And then from Tom, an email, I've had a rare form of lymphoma, specifically mantle cell, and have been cancer-free for over 12 years. But recently I've had some problems that may be related to this cancer. I was given a quick appointment for an ultrasound to check this out about a week ago. This morning they called and had to cancel. They could not get a technician into the ultrasound. I'm in a lurch now and may need to do a quick drive down to Vanderbilt Medical Center, a two-day drive to check this out. I'm afraid it may be that the cancer has returned. Dr. Jarvis, I asked you what this situation looks like on the ground. Two big examples. 
Yeah, absolutely, and and you know, and they, and they just highlight the the real the realization that we are under a crisis that no one wants to talk about, um, and and this is now talking about people's lives. So so, and I feel for both of these individuals. Um, I will say, you know, again, you are correct. It definitely is regional as to whether or not you can get an appointment uh, for a new provider. Um, and and the more rural our areas are, the less the the less those are available to people. Um, and for the second second individual, my heart goes out to you, and I and I and I feel terrible that that's happened. I will say, you know, uh, be proactive, make phone calls now to see if they can sketch you in at another time. Um, and uh, and if you do have to travel, I, I wish you all the best. Um, but you know, these are real world examples of what's happening, unfortunately, in all of our communities and probably affecting most people's families right now. Um, yeah, Dr. Mills, we had a caller who had to drop off who wanted to know what the impact has been on the trend toward giving everyone a private hospital bed. He said when he was an intern back in 1965, he worked on 20 bed wards. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, those are the those are the days. But uh, yeah, so we do have our older hospitals um, tend to have semi-private rooms, so two people in a room, um, and then newer hospitals are pretty much all built um, with private rooms, and in part because of the increasing knowledge about how infectious diseases are spread. I think one of the things that will come out of the COVID pandemic. Um, is hopefully really private rooms in most places. So um, the good news is if you are in a semi-private room, um, there are things you can do or patients, friends of yours who can do. So um, as an example, putting a curtain um, between the two beds. And even though sometimes people are hesitant because they want to be social with the person, the other person in the room, but you know, you want to um, not, you want to not be so social, uh, sometimes like that. And the other thing is just to ask that all visitors uh, coming into the room to mask, um, that we see that a lot in hospitals across Maine and across the country where um, people in hospitals are supposed to mask, but when they get into the hospital room where the, their, their family member is or loved one is, they take the mask off. Um, and so, it, but asking everybody to mask when they come into the room, they're not really supposed to take off the mask, but it's hard to enforce that. My, my uh, sense because, is though, that he's asking about, is this part of the problem that, you know, because we're having all these individual oh, rooms, we don't have the capacity that we had before. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I was misinterpreting the question. Um, no, that's not the, that's if we had, uh, no, I mean, these semi, these private rooms that are in hospitals now weren't semi-private rooms to begin with. I mean, they were built as private rooms. Um, and uh, we we have you know, tried to put you know, people in to, uh, to you know, semi-private rooms to try to, you know, make sure we get everybody in, but we can't put two people into a private room. I mean, that's not the, um, and we can't put, um, yeah, so it's, it's not the private room is not the issue. Thank you. Well, yeah, we do have to take another quick break. What are your questions about COVID, about the flu, about medical care in Maine? Send your email, a brief email, quickly to talk at mainpublic.org. Find us on social media or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You are listening to Maine Calling. Maine hospital leaders are with me to answer your questions about COVID-19 and other health matters. With me, Dr. Dora Mills with Maine Health and Dr. Jim Jarvis with Northern Light Health. If you're quick, you can join our conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Find us on social media or send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. Dr. Jarvis, one thing we haven't talked about very much is long COVID. I know that 
Um, research and scientists still do not completely understand it, but are learning more and more. Uh, also, we saw that study back in August from Pew about how many people are missing work due to long COVID. What is your sense? How would you characterize how much of a problem long COVID is and will be for Maine and for our society moving forward? I'm sorry, that was my mistake. Why don't you start over again? I think that's an excellent question. And really what we have to talk about when we talk about long COVID is what is it? And we don't have a good definition. What we know is, is that, that people who have had an acute infection with COVID-19, if they're symptomatic, can have long-term consequences of that. And we have seen that um, some studies that say upwards of 30% of individuals, even if they had just a mild infection, um, that, uh, that they may have uh, for months some lingering effects of that infection, whether that be just a sense of fatigue, uh, prolonged cough, um, but then we know there are more serious things. We know that people are at higher risk for cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes after having had COVID, even if they just had mild symptoms. Then we also have some alarming um, data that kind of suggests that children who get COVID are at a higher incidence of developing diabetes, another long-term condition. So these are all kinds of things that we don't know all the answers about. We also know there are some people who struggle with some neurologic conditions afterwards that they may not be able, that they might have some numbness or tingling in their arms or legs, or may actually have some movement disorders and things like that. So the, there's just a broad, broad, broad spectrum of things that, that go under the, the definition of long COVID. We don't know what causes all of them. It does seem that there's probably some kind of autoimmune reason for this. So the COVID causes an immense inflammatory reaction inside the body. And sometimes that causes some other areas of the body to be attacked. It may be that the virus itself does some things. It's really not clear. What is clear is people need assistance with this. And many people are just kind of either going around and you know feeling like, hey, uh, this just must be the way things are right now and not seeking care, or they're seeking care and it's not being recognized as maybe that this is a, a, an issue with COVID. I think it's gonna become a very standard question for providers to say, in the last 12 months, have you had a COVID infection? Because that may be what's triggering some of these kind of long-term things. So then the question comes in, well, how do we treat them? Well, each one is going to be very, very different, and each person's going to be different. There is no quick fix. There is no uh, medication or something that will just make all the symptoms go away. We really have to look at what your individual symptoms are. I will say that the state of Maine is now looking at this seriously, particularly after the CDC just came out with an announcement about how many more people probably have some long COVID symptoms. And so the, so the Maine CDC is kind of feeling out around um, at hospitals and health systems right now to try to get a gauge on what we're seeing and then come up with the action plans that we can do. And that might be resetting up uh, some long COVID clinics that many of us disbanded because we really felt that we weren't doing any good service out of those clinics um, to the greater good because we could do that more at our primary care offices. But maybe we need to be more collaborative and find ways to get people to specialists if they need to and to certain therapists if that would help as well. So some good news on that front and more to come. All right. And uh, Marie from South Portland, you wanted to ask about long COVID, correct? My name is Marie Falatar. I'm a long COVID patient. Um, I am treated at both. My experience in the hospital at Northern Lights with a rare cancer and long COVID, I encountered over 50 people, 47 had no education or knowledge of past long COVID, you name it. Maine Health Neurology's practice refuses to treat us. So yes, 
there is a lot we need to know, but there is a lot we can do now. And there is a lot that the hospital system can do to educate, to make up for the fact that the federal government is not doing it. What actual steps have both hospitals taken to educate their patients about this? Because I just got my cognitive results a year and a half later. And a lot of people are sitting out there not knowing there's a problem due to the lack of public education, as well as the lack of education of our providers. And I have asked the governor to make a plan to educate and to fund providers. What are your plans? I'll yeah, go to you, and, Dr. Mills. Yeah, this is Dora. Um, so as Jim mentioned, there are there are a number of um, things that are underway, but as you know, there's also the issue, and, and I'm so sorry about your your own experience, both with low co- along COVID and the healthcare system. Um, you know, as this is emerging, we are trying to figure out, as as Jim said, you know, even what a, defi- a full definition of it is, because there are so there's a whole array of symptoms that we're seeing with people with long COVID, um, the, and not one patient is oftentimes the same as another. So some of them, uh, some people are having cognitive issues, neurological issues. Some of them are having respiratory issues. Some are having you know chronic fatigue. So how they are supported is different depending on the symptoms. So there's not like one kind of one-stop shopping sort of model. Um, But as Jim mentioned, uh, there are a group of us, including people from uh, providers from uh, Northern Light Health and Maine Health and others who are working with the state to try to figure out what um, we can do. And so we want to, there's kind of three prongs. One is to educate the public about long COVID. One is to educate providers about long COVID because most people with long COVID are probably going to be cared for by their primary care provider. So we need to make sure that they're equipped with knowledge and skills of how to do that. And then this third one is to try to figure out what to do with people who can't necessarily get the care from their primary care provider. And what are the options um, for that? Uh, Marie, good luck to you. Thank you for calling in. Um, We'll move to Bingham and William. Hi, William, go ahead. Hey, Ms. Jen. Um, I just wanted to know, do they expect another um, COVID booster to come our way, like a fourth booster? That's all I needed to know. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Jarvis, what do we expect? Yeah, so um, it's a little up in the air right now. Um, What we expect is that uh, when the um, group that meets for the CDC, and and it's an external advisory group that that gives advice on immunization practices, they are due to meet actually this week and maybe next week. And this is on their schedule of things to talk about. Um, that they'll probably start talking about that we will get more into a seasonal um, uh, annual type vaccine schedule for COVID. There's a big caveat to that. If we see another major shift in a variant or a brand new strain of a coronavirus that causes COVID, um, they would probably recommend having a, a, a specific vaccine sooner. We've done that in the past. We've certainly done it with COVID, but we did it with we do it with the flu as well. So those of you who remember in 2008-2009, um, we gave out flu shots to everybody, and then we realized that there was a strain called H1N1 that was causing a lot of problems for people, and so we actually re- re- um, recommended a second flu shot that year. And all flu shots from that time on have included H1N1 in their mix because we missed it that year and it caused significant disease. So we know we do shift from time to time. I'm I'm in the camp that we will probably start talking about 
a seasonal um, COVID vaccine coming out sometime in the fall that mirrors the, the flu schedule, um, but remains to be seen and again, still being talked about. All right, we have an email here from Paul. Um, I am up to date on all my COVID vaccines. I got the bivalent booster on September 7th, almost seven months ago. Has it worn off? Should I get another booster? Dora. Well, great question. And I actually have the same question. I also got mine in early September. And, um, you know, as the FDA and the CDC are talking about an annual fall um, booster, I'm kind of sitting there thinking, well, what about a little earlier? You know, we so we're looking, you know, everybody's looking at the data to see when the immunity wanes. Um, and so we don't quite know the full answer to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it is, especially if you're somebody at risk or you just really don't want to get COVID, um, you know, is, is a year okay? I think they're, and I think they're probably trying to balance the science as to uh, what the data are showing us when the vex, the immunity wanes from the booster, along with um, the practicality, you know, because sometimes you can just vaccinate a lot more people if you say, hey, it's every fall, get your booster. But, um, but at the same time, there may be some people who need to get it sooner. So I'm watching that data and I we don't fully know the answer to the question. So hopefully sometime we will soon because we know, um, but yeah. We'll go to Debbie who's calling from Scarborough. Hi, Debbie, go ahead. Hi, excuse me. Um, I just wanted to let people know that in the state of Maine, if you have an anaphylactic reaction to, um, the vaccines, um, in particular the COVID vaccine, um, it's very difficult to find a place that will give you the vaccine again and monitor you. Uh, most offices, um, at least around in this area, my understanding was they don't do anything. So I found um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital, they have a desensitization unit that's specific for all different types of allergies. And um, that's where I've gone to get future vaccines. And um, it's through the allergy department. Well, thank you so much for that tip. And thank you for calling in, um, Debbie. Let's see here. I'm going to go to Sherry, who's calling from Westbrook. Hi, Sherry. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I um, was just uh, wanting to point out uh, the lack of uh, attention being put on um, uh, when someone first gets COVID. Uh, it seems like, you know, a lot of things aren't done until hospitalization is needed. And there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we can do to prevent it from kind of taking over our bodies. And, uh, you know, my family used um, some pretty strong herbal antivirals. Um, those are very helpful. Uh, and also, you know, there's some proven um, medicines that have, that have been not, um, have been banned, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. A couple of the ivermectin was one that a good friend of mine uh, was actually, his life was saved by, um, by getting um getting those early on. Sherry, I'm going to let the doctors respond because I think this is an important point and um, we're, we're really tight on time. So Dr. Jarvis, um, what is your response to Sherry's recommendations? 
Yeah, so my response is what I what I've been saying since the beginning, which is follow the data and the science. And so um, the two treatments, uh, the the two prescribed medications that was just mentioned there, both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, have both been shown not to be effective in treating uh, both acute COVID um, and uh, severe COVID. And so I, I just I, I put a caution out there um, that while those things were tried in the past, uh, but there has been some good. Uh, clinical trials um, of late that have just come out and, and disputed that. I can't comment on things like herbal medications um, because unfortunately they are not regulated here in the United States and therefore we don't really have too much in the way of clinical trials. But we do have some excellent medications that are available for individuals who get COVID and I highly recommend them, for, especially for anybody who's in a high risk category. And like I said, that's a lot of people. Um, so, so Paxlovid would be the number one uh, prescribed drug right now. It's readily available in Maine. There is no reason why people can't uh, get it from a prescription. Um, it does have some, some problems with uh, interactions with certain medications, and that's the reason why you need to have your provider check that. And then there still is a medication called remdesivir, which unfortunately right now is done by an infusion and it takes three days, but that can be used in those individuals who can't use Paxlovid. There is one other antiviral that's available out there, a little less use, useful, um, but can be used as a third line if those other two don't meet. And we also know there are some other antivirals that are under um, investigation right now. So there is some excellent uh, medication out there. And I will say I took Paxlovid. Uh, and when I started it, my symptoms for my COVID um, uh, relented within, within, 15, within 15 hours of me starting the medication. And that seems to be what most people are saying, that a day or two on Paxlovid and they feel a lot better. Um, and there is some evidence to say that that may actually um, keep people from getting any long-term uh, COVID symptoms. And so, so there's some benefits there. So anybody over age 50, heart or lung disease, immunocompromised, pregnant, um, really should seek out to their provider if they test positive for COVID. And I would just also add, I agree with everything Jim said. So thank you, Jim. Um, and also, even if you have mild symptoms, if you're early on, you really need to get Paxlovid within the first you know, five days, but the sooner the better. So even if you have mild symptoms, especially if you're a high risk, call your PCP, get that prescription for, for Paxlovid as soon as possible or remdesivir, because even if you have mild symptoms, they may get more severe. Sherry, thank you so much for your call and you will be the last call of the hour. We're out of time. And thank you both for joining us. Coming back to Maine calling Dr. James Jarvis, Senior Physician Executive System Incident Command with Northern Light Health and Dr. Dora Mills, Chief Health Improvement Officer for Maine Health. Today's sound engineer was KG Akimaladun. Maine Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can visit maincalling.org for any show and our audio archive and to subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. Tomorrow on the program, the work of James Allen McPherson, the first black writer to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.